Well, this morning we continue our study of the 12 apostles listed in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. So we're in a, a current exposition of the entire Gospel of Matthew. We've been here for a little while. We're going to be here most likely a little while longer. And in many ways, I think this series of messages has felt like a departure of the study of the Gospel of Matthew. But in essence, though, it is a detailed exposition of these three verses because these are verses that contain a list of names. And so whenever you get to a place in Scripture where you just see a bunch of names, you have to work through who these people are and why they're, why they're listed. And so this list is given for a reason, that we would know who the Lord first called to follow Him and to whom He invested with His own authority after His ascension back to heaven. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that the first church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, what is the apostles' teaching? Essentially, it is the content of the New Testament. But it helps us to know not just the teaching of the apostles, which is our our ministry here to work through, exposit as much as we possibly can of the scriptures of the New Testament, certainly, but of the entire uh, counsel of God, So the apostles' teaching, but also to understand the apostles themselves. But this list that we read in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 10, this same list shows up in several different places. It shows up in Matthew chapter 10. There's a similar list in Mark chapter 3, also Luke chapter 6, and then again in Acts chapter 1. Now in every case in these lists, Peter is always listed first, followed by several names, including Andrew, James, and John in varying order. These are the first men that he called, and they were the ones that were closest to Jesus. And then we always see a a second grouping that comes immediately after, and that is the grouping that includes Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. These are a bit more obscure than the first group. The first group, there's a lot of information. And I found myself, even as I was preparing the messages, certainly on Peter, and then uh, even on James and John, I felt the temptation to slow down and go, maybe I'll do Peter part two, you know, or Peter part three, and keep on going. There's so much information on these people, um, not just about their life and the details of their life, but also the things that they wrote and sort of the flavor of of their writing and who they are. So really, you could go a lot farther, but for the sake of keeping us focused on our study... Uh, I really want to try to move us through, and so there is a lot that can be said. But when, once you get to this list of Peter, uh, excuse me, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, it becomes a bit more obscure. There's a little bit less known about these men, still enough to know about who they are and how the Lord glorified himself through them. But for our purposes of study today, we're going to look at all four of these men today in one message. And in order to really structure our examination of them, I want to consider... Uh, really, all four of them under five headings. So we're going to discuss their calling, their courage, their compromise, their confession, and their conclusion. Now again, at first glance, there does not seem to be very much written about some of these men, but I think once we synthesize all four Gospels together, we really quickly realize that there's a lot more written here than we might originally think. Again, I'm not going to work name by name and kind of go down the list. I really want to consider them all together. Now, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, so now I'm skipping over John for a second. When we read the book of Acts along with the other synoptic gospels, 
we quickly see that these four names are scarcely mentioned. In these four books, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, Philip is only named, Bartholomew is only named, Thomas is only named, and then Matthew, in addition to being named, only appears in one story, in one instance. But it's John, again, who comes to our rescue and gives us more of the stories, more of the interactions, and even some of the confessions of these men. And so for today, we're going to be primarily working out of the Gospel of John. So if you would, turn with me to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John in the New Testament. And in turning to John's Gospel, we're going to consider all four of these men and their calling. Now, we have no record of Thomas's calling. So remember back in uh, Peter and Andrew, they were called at the waterside as they're fishing, they come out of the fishing boat, and Jesus calls them to himself. The same thing with James and John. Uh, Matthew, we actually already read about back in Matthew 9, and we're going to cover that just quickly again today. But Thomas, we don't really know the conditions around him being called to Jesus, but we do know that he was called. We do, however, encounter a few of the other disciples in John chapter 1. Once Jesus Christ had been identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That was how he was identified when John saw him coming. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as soon as that happens, the Lord begins to draw a following. People identify him and they say, I want to follow him. And they begin to follow behind. But in the middle of chapter 1, several of the disciples have come to meet him and they begin uh, telling stories, or excuse me, telling other people about him. They begin telling stories about him to other people. We see the first two of John's disciples, which include Peter's uh, brother Andrew, and Andrew then tells Simon Peter. He comes and follows and, and tells him that he's met Jesus and he wants him to come and see who he is. And then he brings him to Jesus in verse 42. And then we encounter the first name in our list for today. And so John chapter 1, look at verse 43. Now again, Andrew has already brought Simon Peter to Jesus. They've already met each other. But then it says here in verse 43, the next day he, referring to Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So, in terms of the chronology, in terms of the timeline of John's gospel, Philip becomes the first person that Jesus deals with and finds and calls directly. So, they're traveling into this region. Uh, Verse 43 says that Jesus is intending to go into Galilee. That's the northernmost region of Israel. Uh, That's where if you will. He's from uh, Nazareth. He's been living in Nazareth, but he's eventually going to switch over and move into Capernaum. But before he does that, he goes back to this region. Jesus has been in the desert with John up to this point for the last bit of time, but now he's returning home, likely to the home of Simon Peter and Andrew, to the town of Bethsaida. That's where he finds Philip. And when he encounters Philip, he says simply, follow me. And Philip does. Now, some believe that Philip himself was formerly one of John the Baptist's disciples. Now, John the Baptist, he was kind of this uh, eccentric, uh, devout uh, Jewish uh, prophet, really. He dresses kind of 
unique. He dresses like an Old Testament prophet. He's got a pretty sharp tongue when it comes to uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but people are, are flocking to him in droves, and he's baptizing them for the purpose of repentance of their sins, turning from their sins to prepare their hearts for the coming of Jesus Christ. And so several people in, in Jesus's, uh, his own uh, group have already been following John the Baptist, and so we know for a fact that Andrew's one of those. We think that John might be another, and many believe that Philip also might be another as well. This would explain uh, this seemingly effortless calling, Jesus uh, making uh, it known for him to follow him. He would have already believed that he was the Messiah. He was already waiting for Jesus. And so all Jesus has to say at this point is, you, follow me. Yes, Lord, he would have followed. Again, of his origins, we can't be sure. We know he's from Bethsaida. One thing is for sure, though, he knows his Bible, and he rightly identifies who Jesus is. And we see this play out in the next action here. Look at verse 45, very next verse. So Philip's already been called. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Now it's clear that Philip here has been sent to find the next of the twelve. And this is a man named Nathanael. Now there's just one problem here. Remember back to Matthew's list of names, we don't see Nathanael listed in that list. We don't see him listed in Mark or Luke or even Acts. Nathanael does not appear in any of these lists. However, scholars believe that Nathanael is actually another name used by this other man, Bartholomew. Bartholomew. The name Bartholomew is a Hebrew surname which literally means son of Tolmai. So bar is usually a prefix. It means son of. So Barnabas, son of encouragement, so on and so forth. So Bartholomew means son of Tolmai. So many believe that the full name would be here Nathaniel is his first name, Nathaniel, son of Tolmai, or Nathaniel bar Tolmai. That would be his full name. The reason scholars believe this is the same person is because in every other instance, in every other list, we see Philip and Bartholomew together. It's like they're paired up. And that would explain how they came to be here in John's Gospel. This is telling the story of how these guys came to be paired up together, Philip and Bartholomew. So Philip finds his friend Nathaniel Bartomai and declares to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. It seems clear now that not only did these two men know each other, they likely did, uh, previously, but they also would have had some kind of discussion at some point and studied together these prophecies concerning Messiah because now he's coming to his friend and he's saying, we found him. We found him. We were talking about this before. This, this son of God here, this, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's the one in whom the Bible is writing. So Moses and their law, so that's the, the, what we consider to be the, the, the Old Testament law. So that's, uh, that's Genesis all through Leviticus and even beyond. And then the prophets. You're talking about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. So the entire Bible is speaking of one person. Now there's lots of people listed in the Bible, but there's really one focal point of all of Scripture, and that's the Messiah. And so he's telling him, look, the one we've been waiting for, the, the, the coming king, the Messiah, the, the anointed one, 
We found him. Can you imagine just for a second with me? You've been waiting for this person to show up for a thousand years, 1,500 years, as long as the prophecy's been written. And every single time that this, a new book of the Bible is written in the Old Testament, the, the expectation is increasing as well. What they knew in, in Moses' day versus what they knew in Isaiah's day versus what they knew in Malachi's day, it's increasing. And so all of history is pointing to this one point, this one person, and that's the arrival of Jesus Christ. So can you imagine being the one to go and tell your friend, remember when we were kids and we were studying, we were studying Torah together? And we read all these prophecies and all these promises and we imagined what this might look like and who this might be? He tells his friend, we found him. We found him, he's here. So Philip is telling him, we found the Messiah. He also identifies that it is Jesus of Nazareth. And as soon as he says that, however, Nathaniel's expectations are dashed a little bit. And he says, surely nothing can come out of the backwater town of Nazareth. Nazareth is, well, I'm not going to compare it to any town around here. But say there was a town that nothing really good comes out of. I don't know, a town with a history of murderers and drunkards and adulterers and gossip and slander. I don't know, a town like that, that's got that kind of history. Certainly somebody would say, nothing good's going to come out of that town. That's Nazareth, by the way. Nazareth was a tiny little village, barely even a town. Nothing doing, nothing going, nobody prominent, nobody noble. It's just kind of this backwoods, hick town with nobody in it. And you're telling me the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is coming out of that town? I don't know if I believe that. Philip's answer is simply this. Come and see. Come talk to him as I have, and you'll see who this is. And so he brings him along. And then we transition away, at this point, from Philip toward Nathaniel Bartholomew. So Philip is kind of, he's the one who brings his friend along and now we focus in on this engagement of Nathaniel and Jesus. And in verse 47, we get a characterization of this man, Nathaniel, from none other than the Lord himself. This is pretty cool. You have to know that when Jesus says something about you in the Bible, it's got some weight to it, wouldn't you think? Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. This is very interesting. He says, Behold, an Israelite indeed. This, essentially what he's saying is, this is the genuine article. He sees them coming toward him. He says, now, he goes, this is a real Israelite. In whom there is no deceit. He even characterizes his personality and his, his character. The, the word here given for deceit is, is dolos, it's bait, or uh, some kind of a snare, like a trap. So the, the sense of the word is there's nothing crafty about this guy. There's nothing that's going to be deceitful or two-faced or ensnaring. He's not, a, he's not a double-faced person. He's a genuine person. There is no deceit in him. Now, Jesus is not saying that he's a perfect man. He's not saying he's a sinless man. But he's making some kind of a, of a character judgment that Nathaniel Bartholomew is an earnest and genuine Israelite. Verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Can you imagine walking up to this person who your friend has just told you is the Messiah from Nazareth 
And before you even get there and say, hi, nice to meet you, he says, ah, I know who you are. You're a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit. So Nathaniel says, how, how do you know me? We've never met before. How do you know me? Jesus answered and said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now there is much speculation with this verse. What does this mean? Many scholars believe that this reference to under the fig tree is referring to Daniel's place of prayer and solitude. A lot of scholars believe that this would have been a, a private prayer place, kind of like a, a prayer closet. This might have been some place that Nathaniel would have gone regularly to be by himself to pray and to meditate and read Scripture and so on and so forth. So here's the thing. If Jesus would have seen him there, it would have been nothing short of a divine foresight. Only God would have seen and heard him in that place. That's the sense of what many scholars believe he's talking about here. That only God could have seen him under the fig tree. Which causes Nathanael to respond this way in verse 49. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, you got to love this, my friends, look at this. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Shortest conversation in history with the most information packed out. But this is remarkable. All Jesus has to say is, I saw you. I know you, and I saw you. And Nathaniel bursts, you're the Son of God. Just five minutes before, Philip is saying, we found him. From Nazareth, really? Come and see. Within minutes, he knows he's the Son of God. He knows. This is a stunning confession. A stunning confession of deity and of sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Nathaniel, again, has been waiting for this person. He's been waiting for this man. A genuine, a true Israelite would have been studying the Scriptures his entire life. Would have gone to Jewish school and been training and learning and memorizing verses and memorizing doctrine and saying prayers and going to temple and observing all the feasts. This man would have been preparing his heart and preparing his mind his entire life for this person for this Messiah, for this Son of God. And Nathanael finally sees him and declares him to be the Son of God and declares him to be the King of Israel. David's lineage. And then we see in verses 50-51, Jesus answered and said to him, I love this, this is really cool, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. You mean to tell me that just because I say I saw you there, that's enough for you? And there's got to be a twinkle in his eye when he says this. And he says, yes, that's what I believe. And he says, but you're going to see more than this. And then what he says in verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is remarkable. This is remarkable because in this verse, and I wish I had the time, I want to make the time, I can't, I want to go through this. I went through this years ago when we went through the Gospel of John, I spent some time here, go back to that message if you want to get more, but there's prophecy upon prophecy upon prophecy listed in this verse. Not only is he using a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, he's also talking about this vision that Jacob gets. 
Jacob in Genesis 28 has this, he falls asleep, remember this, and he sees this dream, this vision of this ladder, of this, this stairway that goes from earth to heaven. And he sees angels ascending and descending. There's this connection between heaven and earth, and Jacob doesn't know what this means. But that's the point of Jacob's conversion, when he realizes who God is, who he is, and the fact that he has to devote his life to God, but he sees this vision, this ladder, this stairway. But look at what Jesus says. You will see the heavens opened and angels of God ascending and descending, not on some random ladder. They'll be descending on the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? It's Jesus. What he, he's making a theological statement as well. That He is the ladder, the stairway between heaven and earth. I'm the bridge. I'm the connection between earth and heaven. This is remarkable. Remarkable. This would have sent Nathaniel's head spinning, which I love. And so, from this point, we see that Nathaniel is both a genuine man, and now we know he's a genuine convert. He's sold out. He's, this is enough for him. He's following Jesus Christ. And so, Nathaniel at this point drops out of the story, and after this, he only appears one more time. He appears in a fishing boat at the end of John's Gospel after the resurrection. And so, even though we know that Nathaniel's along, so anytime you see the disciples or the later the, the twelve apostles or the twelve, you know that Nathaniel's with them. And so, at every single point, all these men have been following along. So, really, they're at every single story that you see the apostles or the disciples. But in terms of Nathaniel himself, we don't see him again uh, until the end here. Now, Matthew is not mentioned in John's Gospel, which is very interesting. We do know that he was called by the Lord in Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5. We know that for sure. I'm not going to recap the entire thing since we explored this back in Matthew 9, 9. But we will note a couple things here, that Matthew is also known as Levi. That's his given name, Levi. We know that he's a tax collector who's working for Rome. And essentially what this was is a in terms of the Roman government, they would go and collect taxes from the people, but they would essentially sell these tax-collecting franchises to townspeople. And so when they came to Israel, they found a whole bunch of Jewish citizens, and they said, I'll tell you what, you go and collect taxes from all your neighbors, we'll give you a cut. And so that's what they did. They would, they would sell out these tax-collecting businesses to individuals, and those individuals could go and collect taxes for the Romans, and then in doing so, they could pad their own pocket with whatever they wanted, and they had the full force of the Roman army behind them to, to enforce that, that law, if you will. And so for the Jews, tax collectors became traitors, because many times these tax collectors, they weren't fair, because they're working for the enemy, they're working for the Romans. And so they would pad their pockets, and they would live a very lavish lifestyle on the backs of their own brothers and sisters in the faith. And so Matthew is a traitor in the eyes of the Jews. Now we're going to cover this dynamic a lot more next week when we talk about Simon the Zealot. We'll talk about these two together. But we read about Matthew's calling. I'm just going to recap this for you. Matthew 9, 9, it says that Jesus went on from there. He's traveling through Galilee. And he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And the Bible says that Matthew got up and followed him. 
We also know that later on he, he goes and holds a, a banquet for Jesus, according to Luke. And so he's left his business. Matthew, in a single instance, leaves his profession, leaves all the money, leaves the business itself behind, and he immediately follows Jesus, and he never goes back. We never see a single instance of Matthew going back to the tax office and going back to his old career. He has also been changed. And so we see this person, Matthew, a despised sinner, becoming a genuine follower of Christ. And so at this point, again, we don't have an account of Thomas's calling, but we do see Philip's calling. We do see uh, Nathaniel Bartholomew's calling. We do see Matthew's calling. And now we're going to move on to number two, their courage. Their courage. This brings us to John chapter 11. So go to John 11. There's only a little bit here, but it does, I believe, give us a window into some of these men. Matthew, or excuse me, John 11. John 11. There's a lot going on in John 11. Again, when we went through this exposition a couple years ago, there was just so much power packed into this chapter. John 11 is really more famously where Lazarus is raised from the dead And there's so much drama that goes in and around his raising of the dead. We see Jesus' interaction with the disciples and all the stuff going on with the disciples. Then he interacts with Martha and then with Mary. Then he goes to the townspeople and he's there and he weeps and he mourns and then he raises them from the dead in a miraculous fashion. It's just a remarkable chapter of Scripture. But we learn something about one of the disciples, Thomas. We learn something about his personality here in verse 16. Again, if you remember, Lazarus has died. He's already gone. At the beginning of the chapter, we learn he's sick and he's about to die. Jesus knows this, and then at some point they get the news that he has, in fact, died. But once they learn that he's sick, Jesus doesn't immediately take the group and go uh, to, uh, to this town to go and visit him. Before he goes, he, they actually stay put. It's very interesting. They stay put And then in verse 15, Jesus tells the disciples, Lazarus is dead. He's gone. Now later on, his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, approach him and say, but if you had come earlier, he would have lived. Why didn't you come when you heard he was sick? And there's a whole drama around that story. But at this point, the disciples are there with him. Lazarus, their friend, has died. And then Jesus says this, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Interesting statement. Why would he be glad that they were not there? Why was he glad that Jesus was not there himself to heal him? Because he knows that he's about to raise him from the dead. They don't know this yet. They don't know any of this information. Only Jesus does. But he knows he's about to raise him from the dead. And once he does this, it's going to catalyze their faith. This is, this is a, a different kind of miracle. This does something for them. Because they can watch Jesus calm the storm. They can watch Him heal people's eyes and have limbs grow back. They can see that kind of stuff. And on some level, even the, even the worst skeptic, the most devout skeptic could say, well, there's something to that. That's a parlor trick. It just so happened the storm cleared right when He said that. But when you see a person who goes in the ground and their body begins to rot and decay and they're there for four days to the point where their body stinks and there's no hope 
of them coming back from the dead. And then Jesus goes and raises him, and he gets up and walks out, and a couple of verses later, he's sitting at lunch. That's miraculous. And there's no denying his power at that point. And it's interesting, if you keep on reading in the narrative, the Pharisees get so angry about this, they want to kill Lazarus again. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable that their heart is so hardened, they just can't tolerate the resurrection. Let's keep him dead next time. Anyway, I digress. So the point of all this is that Jesus is going to display even more so his deity and his power, and he's going to catalyze their faith. And he says, so that you may believe. I'm doing this for your faith. And he says, but now, at this point, let's go. So they go, but at this point, there's some troublesome things happening in the group. Why? Well, think back in your mind to John chapter 8. In John 8, the crowd tries to kill Jesus. So they're not happy he's around anymore. They want to kill him. In John 9, the Pharisees have already opened an investigation into Jesus and the disciples, and they've told everybody that if anybody confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he's going to be put out of the synagogue. He's going to be excommunicated. So the disciples had reason to believe that if they were caught, that they would be either excommunicated or arrested or even killed. It was not good for them publicly to be around Jesus. But in verse 16 of John 11, that's where we are, John 11, verse 16, Thomas, who it says here is also called Didymus. Didymus. Didymus is an Aramaic word for a twin. So he's called Thomas the twin, which means he probably had another brother who looked just like him. Who is that person? We have no idea. We'll see them both in heaven, most likely. But at this point, Thomas speaks up. And he says this, verse 16, Let us also go so that we may die with him. Now, on one level, this is courageous, and that's kind of what I'm going with right now. This is courageous, because he's so devoted to Christ that he knows that wherever Jesus goes, he's going to follow, and if that means he's going to die, he's going to die. And so he rallies the troops. He says, all right, guys, Let's go and die with Jesus, because that's going to be what's going to happen. This is the same kind of courage, by the way, that prompted Peter to attack a whole Roman legion of soldiers with a little, a little sword, and he takes a swipe at Malchus, one of the servants, and he cuts off his ear, and we know the whole story behind that. And Jesus rebukes him and tells him to put his sword away, because he says those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. It's that kind of brazen, sort of thoughtless, just zeal but it's somewhat courageous. But that's Thomas's impulse here as well. Let's go and die with him. But this is baked into the courageous spirit, however, a little bit of doubt. There's doubt creeping in here. It's clear that even though Jesus has confidently told them that he's going to go and heal Lazarus and raise him from the dead, thus growing their faith, he tells them flat out, he says he's asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. Even though Jesus says that, Thomas's conclusion is that they're simply going to go and march to their own death. And so again, this is courage mixed with a little bit of spiritual calamity. We're going to go and follow Jesus, and we're going to go die. So that's what they're prepared to do. And that eventually leads us into, number three, their compromise. These were not perfect men by any stretch. It's easy to go and walk around and 
go to some of these old Gothic churches and see you know, window panes with all these mosaics of their life and the halos over their heads and these glorious pictures of these steel-hearted men doing amazing things for Jesus and leading the church. But they were sinned, sinful and flawed just like we are. And we've seen that. If anything, these guys are pretty human. All the disciples are. And I want, to, I want to keep on going. Turn to John 14. I want to see this. I want to see this. There's more happening here. This is one of the more famous discourses of two of today's subjects. John 14, both Thomas and Philip show up in this discourse, even though it's not really at their best. One thing you know about Scripture, if Scripture was only written through the hands of men, there'd be more glorious stories of human people. But the fact that this is divinely inspired by God, He includes all the faults. There's, I don't think there's a single man or woman of God in the Scriptures where we don't find something wrong with them. They're, they're not highly exalted, even though they are, we see courageous and wonderful stories about all these saints in here. They're meant to encourage us, but they're flawed and sinful, just like we are. The only one who's listed in Scripture who is not is Jesus Christ. He's it, because He is perfect and sinless. But this point here in John 14, this is the upper room discourse. This takes place the night before Jesus goes to the cross, and really, chapter 14 He's talking to them about what's going to happen. So 13, he washes their feet. He's trying to encourage them. By the time he gets to 17, he's going to pray for them. But here in chapter 14, he does. He wants to encourage them. I want to look at this together here. John 14, Jesus tells the disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Again, Jesus is promising the disciples here that while He is going to go away, and He does, He's going to come again for them. He's promised to return and come back and take them to Himself. Again, He's encouraging them. He's lifting them up. And the idea, however, here is that their hope and their future, again, their hope and their future is tied squarely to Him. And He tells them, you know the way. But they don't understand. They're still a little bit dense spiritually. They're still trusting in their own efforts. They're not trusting in Him, which leads us to verse 5. Look at verse 5. Thomas, foolhardy Thomas, the Thomas who's going to go and die with Jesus, Thomas says to Him, Lord, we do not know where You are going. How do we know the way? As far as I'm concerned, Lord, we're going to just go and die with You. Where are You going? My friend Thomas Again, he demonstrates he still doesn't trust Jesus to lead him. We don't know the way, Lord. How are we supposed to follow you? How are we supposed to know which way to go? Look at verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
One of the most dynamic things that Jesus ever said recorded in Scripture. We tend to think pluralistically that there are many ways to get to Jesus. Many different paths. As long as you're religious, you'll get to heaven. As long as you have some kind of faith, you'll get to heaven. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's it. It's exclusive. And again, this is, this is the word of Christ. And so their path forward, their direction, their hope, everything the disciples need is tied to the person of Jesus Christ. It's about knowing Him. And this opens up even more discussion. Keep on reading with me. Look at verse 7. He says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you know Him and have seen Him. Look at verse 8. Philip, our friend Philip, he pipes up. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So now Philip enters into the four. First it's Thomas, now Philip is talking. Whereas Thomas, his comment pertains more to the issue of self-sufficiency. Lord, we don't know where to go. What are we supposed to do? He's looking for our part to play. And don't we do that a lot? We say, Lord, I want you to just show me what to do with my life. Give me the path. What's my ministry? What's my job? What's my thing? I just need to go and do something and and do something for you. Whatever you want me to do, Lord, I'm just going to do it. But God doesn't always give that to us, does he? Sometimes the doors open right up. I mean, every now and then you go to make a decision and it's like, just like, all the doors open up and the, the path is so clearly in front of you. That if you don't walk through it, you're just kind of daft. Sometimes it's that clear, but other times it's not. But in the end, we need to understand that this is not about us just forging our way forward to get to heaven. This is about us learning to lean on Christ and rely on Him and look to Him for answers, for provision, for peace, for security. In the end, this is about Jesus. It is not about us living a certain kind of way, even though faith produces a lifestyle. I don't want to get that confused. But Philip's, or excuse me, Thomas's comment is about self-sufficiency. It's a lack of faith in the provision of Jesus. Haven't I told you that there's the way to get there and I'm the way? Don't you know that by now, Thomas? After three years, buddy? But now Philip is asking a different kind of a question. Philip is now asking for more proof than simply Jesus' word. I want proof now. I want to see more things. If you show us the Father, it'll be enough for us. What's he asking for? What's he asking for? Because remember, Jesus is talking. He's telling him something. He's telling him what needs to be. And it's not enough for him. Philip is asking for the glory cloud. We want, to be, we want to see the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. Maybe even Philip is saying, look, 
Peter, James, and John, they go out to, they go out to go up on the mountain and see you transfigured. I want to see that. You show me that, that's enough. That's good enough for me. I'll do whatever you say at that point. That's what he's asking for. Show us the Father. We want to see the glory. If you show us the Father, then that's going to be enough. This is not dissimilar to Philip's words back in chapter 6, verse 5. Back in John chapter 6, Jesus is feeding the 5,000, and Jesus asks Philip about where they might be able to get enough bread to feed everybody. And John records that Jesus says this to test Philip. But Philip calculates that he only has 200 denarii, and that's not enough to feed all the people. Some have regarded Philip as sort of the bean counter of the group, that he's sort of trying to figure it out, and I, I find myself caught in that trap. I'm always trying to figure things out. Let me, let me just solve this like a math problem. I just, if I could just figure out the answer and get to the conclusion, then it will be okay. Well, that doesn't really lead to, to faith, does it? If I can figure everything out. That's what Philip's trying to do. He's trying to do the math in his head. He's trying to figure out, okay, how do we feed all these thousands of people with, all the, with the little money that we have? Again, he's trusting in human resources rather than Christ himself. Philip wanted proof. He wants assurance. Thomas wants definitive instructions. What to do? And this is a pervasive problem with the disciples. Their faith is always compromised. More and more and more. This is why Jesus always, or I want to say always, consistently, consistently rebukes the disciples. How many times in the Gospels do you read this phrase? Oh, you have little faith. Oh, you have little faith. Why didn't you believe? Oh, you have little faith. Why didn't you trust me? Oh, you have little faith. Over and over and over and over again. Now, he doesn't say that they have no faith. He just says their faith is small. Their faith is emaciated. Their faith needs to grow. We see that here. Sadly, this problem of weak and compromised faith comes to a head for Thomas in John chapter 20. Go over to John chapter 20. We're moving our way through the narrative here. John 20 brings us in after Jesus has died on the cross. He's already been scourged. He's already been whipped and beaten. The crown of thorns has already been placed on his head. He's already been nailed there. He's already said seven things from the cross to various people. He's given up his spirit. He has paid for sin once for all. He's bowed his head and he has died. And he's already been buried and put in the ground, into the tomb. And now he's already resurrected by John chapter 20. He has come back from the dead and he appears to the disciples. But John notes, I'm in chapter 20 now, in verse 24, that Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, the twin, was not with the group when Jesus came back. And so again, we see a series of post-resurrection appearances. He doesn't just come back and say, well, I'm here, and then leave again. He actually goes and talks to people. He talks to, to the women, who, or he talks to, I should say, Martha. She thinks he's the gardener. But he appears to her, he appears to the disciples, and Paul records later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he appears to more than 500 people all at one time. But now at this point, he's appeared to the disciples. He's gone back to the 12. Well, I should say the 11, because Thomas is not there. Now again, we know that when the, when the Lord was crucified, all the disciples scattered. They all ran away, except for John. John stayed with him. He was there for the whole thing. 
But eventually they all see Jesus again. They all see him alive from the dead and their faith is now confirmed. They saw Lazarus raised from the grave and their faith was made strong. Now they've seen Jesus raised from the grave and they are never to doubt again. Many scholars and apologists really focus on the resurrection, not just for the sake of the gospel story. I mean, the resurrection is what gives us the power to live righteously. It's the thing that secures our place with the Father. It's the acceptance of the death, burial, and resurrection. It's the acceptance of the sacrifice on our behalf. The resurrection has amazing power. But more than just the amazing power and its place in the the gospel story and the power of salvation, the gospel has the power then to solidify faith. What do I mean by that? Well, if these are just a bunch of first century Jewish religious zealots running around Palestine propagating some rabbi that they came to hear under, as soon as this person's killed, they're all going to just flee. Because it happens every couple years. You have some great leader, they get a huge following, something happens, they die or kind of fall out of the way, and everybody just kind of dissipates and goes away. But the fact that the movement actually intensifies, and it gets stronger, and the church grows, and even through the first three centuries of our history, the church was made stronger and stronger and stronger. The apostles didn't have the faith that they had because they just kind of felt religious, They had the faith that they had because they saw the risen Lord. And it was enough for them. And so, again, they see Jesus, again, alive, and their faith is confirmed. But again, Jesus had been telling them he's going to do this. This is not news to them. Matthew 16, 21, he said he would go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He told them he was going to be killed, and he told them he's going to be raised on the third day. Matthew 17, 22, Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men and they will kill him and he'll be raised on the third day. He had told them this. Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, the week before he dies, the week before he goes to the cross, he tells them, behold, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him and on the third day he will be raised up. So over and over again, he had been telling them of his death and his resurrection. This should not have been a big surprise to them if they had listened. And so why did the Son of Man have to die? Why did Jesus go to the cross? The Bible teaches to save people from their sins. Who has sins? Well, we have sins, don't we? The Bible says not a single person is righteous. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and Jesus died to pay for sins, to earn us our forgiveness and salvation. But even though he told them repeatedly, they still didn't fully believe And now he's raised from the dead. All the disciples are now, uh, they, they know his word is true because they now see him except for Thomas. Look at verse 25. John 20, 25. The other disciples were saying to him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side... I will not believe. 
And then after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas was with them. Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Can you imagine this encounter? Where Thomas, who was so full of doubt, so full of fear, so full of foolhardy zeal, and so hardened at this point, so disheveled and so disheartened by the death of Christ, that even his friends, even the disciples who'd been with him for three years, some of which he'd known for a longer time than that, they come to him and they say, he's alive, he's well, he's with us. He says, I don't believe. I want to touch the nail prints in his hands where they put the spear in his side. I, I want to touch that spot where the spear went in. If I can do that, then I'll, I'll believe. And so Jesus offers up his wounds to his disciple. He says, put your finger here. Touch my hands. See that it's me. Place your hand in my side, Thomas. Know that it's me. He says, don't, don't be unbelieving. Don't doubt. Believe. My friends, this is where our friend Thomas gets the terrible nickname. Doubting Thomas. And I'll tell you, don't we struggle with the same things? Don't we get so caught up in our own hard-heartedness that we say, I want to see the glory cloud. I want to to touch the imprint and the nails. I, I want to see tangible proof before I'll believe. I've talked to people all the time, and it happens, and I'm sure you have as well. A person, you're telling them about Jesus Christ, you're telling them the gospel. You could spend all kinds of time with them. And what do they always inevitably say? Well, if God were real, then why doesn't He show Himself to me? Why don't I see Him? If it's so important that I come to salvation, why doesn't He come and tell me Himself? And the answer to that is, even if He did, you wouldn't believe Him. How do I know that? Because Jesus came and walked around and gathered disciples to himself and told them what he was going to do and appeared for three years, died, appeared again, and they still didn't believe. And it took him going to him with his nail-pierced hands to say, look, I'm here. And so, yes, Thomas's faith had been compromised. But then we see something else in this passage. This passage also typifies their faithful confession. Number four in our outline here, their confession. It's unfortunate that John 20 is remembered for Thomas' faithlessness because the confession in verse 28 is marvelous. Let me ask the question, how did Thomas respond when he beholds the bodily resurrected Jesus complete with nail prints and spear wound? How does he respond? Look at verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. This is astonishing. It seems so simple, doesn't it? My Lord and my God. You could read that very quickly and gloss over it. This is dynamic. 
A powerful confession. This is earth-shattering. Let me tell you why. Because not only does Thomas declare Jesus to be the Lord, his master, his rabbi, his teacher, the one he had been following, but he also identifies Jesus as God. When you talk about defending the deity of Christ from the Scriptures, this confession becomes the key proof text for this. There's other places, Titus 2.13 and more. John chapter 8, when Jesus actually invokes the name of God for himself. But this is as clear as day. When Thomas identifies him as Lord and God. And let me tell you, to add some layers of complexity here, for a first century Jew to make this kind of a statement is shocking and even blasphemous if it wasn't true. But this is our timeless confession. This is our confession, is it not? Jesus is our Lord and our God, the second person of the Trinity. He's divine in every possible sense, co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit. It reminds us of other confessions made by the disciples at other points. Even Nathaniel's own confession we read earlier. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's our confession as well. Or even Peter's great confession in Matthew 16, 16, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter responds and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus tells him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Really cool, isn't it? Or taken together the confession of the disciples at the end of John chapter 6, when Jesus asks them, do you not want to go away yourselves? Because after he had given such a difficult teaching in John chapter 6, a lot of the followers stopped following him. They walked away when it got difficult. And so he turns to the disciples that are with him at the moment. He says, are you guys going to leave too? You're not going to go away also, are you? And Simon Peter answers for the group and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then their joint declaration in verse 69, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's an Old Testament title, name for God Most High. You would not call Jesus the Holy One of God lest you be stricken dead by God for blasphemy, if it wasn't true. Jesus is the Holy One. He's God of gods, the King of the universe, the Creator of all things. So this is a marvelous confession. We have believed and come to know for ourselves that You are the Holy One. And again, this is our confession. This is the confession of every Christian believer who knows Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible tells of a day, according to Philippians 2.11, where every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And while, again, these men, they're not sinless. They're not flawless. They all, all of them, struggled with doubt and struggled with discouragement. All of them. Yet they believed. And they confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. They knew Jesus. And they followed Him. All of them believed. 
all of them confessed, all except one, which we'll talk about later on. But how did these men finish? What's their conclusion? Number five, their conclusion. Now, Scripture doesn't record any of their deaths or even the latter years of their ministry. In fact, the last scene for many of these men was that fishing boat I was telling you about in John chapter 21, where after the resurrection, Jesus is on the shore, and they're out fishing. There's seven of them in the boat, and they see from the boat that he's on the shore, and they get excited, and they cry out, He's the Lord, he's there! And Peter he puts on his coat, because he's had, he'd been stripped down for work, and he puts on his coat, and he jumps in the water, and he swims to shore, and they kind of catch up behind him, and they're all there, and he cooks them breakfast, and they have all the catch of the fish, and all that marvelous moment, and Peter's restored that amazing moment, that's the last we hear from most of these men. But according to church tradition, Philip the Apostle, who's not to be confused with Philip the Evangelist, that's a different guy in the book of Acts, but Philip himself ministered in Asia Minor. According to tradition, he was stoned to death in Heliopolis about eight years after the death of James, which would have been around the year AD 52. Philip Bartholomew, as he's known, took the gospel to Persia and Asia, in Armenia. Some accounts say that he was crucified and others say he was drowned, but all confirm that he died as a martyr for Christ. Thomas is believed to have founded several churches in India, and some say he died by way of the spear. And Matthew, believe it or not, continued to minister to the Jews in Israel and abroad. He died, according to some accounts, by being burned at the stake. However, again, he never turned back to his old life. He stayed faithful to Christ. But these men, they held their confession. Even though they compromised at points, even though they had doubts, even though they struggled in their faith, they still confessed Christ and they believed in him. And this is why we echo the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate the faith. Now, there is a lot to our faith. There's a lot to the Christian life. There's a lot to theology. It's all-inclusive. But how much do you really have to believe to belong to God? You have to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and of your own life. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. And in doing so, the Bible teaches you have to believe in your heart. This is only something that you and God know, by the way. But believe in your heart that not only did he die, but was resurrected and lives for you. And that is the substance of salvation in its smallest point. We call all people everywhere to turn from their sins and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? Very simply, that Christ came to earth to live perfectly, to suffer a sinner's death, and to give his life as our ransom on the cross, to pay the full penalty of our sins and deliver us out of darkness of the old life and into light and eternal life, to have our sins forgiven. And you must repent and turn from your sins and confess to God, I've lived my own way, I've sinned against you, I've disobeyed all your rules. And if you examine yourself rightly, we see that we do. 
Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And the Bible says you will be saved. You will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for the testimony of these men. And Lord, certainly we we rightly honor them as great saints of the faith. We honor them for their faithfulness to you. We honor them for their confession and their life. But Lord, certainly we don't venerate them or worship them or place them in a place that they don't deserve to be. They served you. They loved you and they still do. But Father, they they are signposts of what faithfulness ultimately looks like. And that's what we want, Lord. We want to be faithful to you. Father, with the busyness of life, with the cares of this world, with the chaos that ensues, I pray that you would help us to even now quiet our hearts before you, to set our minds on you, and ponder the amazement of the cross that Jesus, the Son of God, gave himself up for me, for me. That you would do such a thing is beyond comprehension. That you would give your life for sinners. You have and you do. We thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. In Spirit of God, I continue to ask that you would bind these truths to our minds and our hearts. Convict us of our sin where we need to be convicted. And even bind the promises of God to us. And give us boldness and confidence and assurance that those who belong to Christ belong to him and know that we do. I pray that you would encourage the hearts of your people and help us now as we turn to the table and remember the cost of our salvation. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.